welcome to episode three of the Pat McCormick podcast. I'm Patrick McCormack, your host, and today I'm very excited to have the head cross-country and distant coach at Manhattan College, Kerry Gallagher, joining me. Kerry also was a Hall of Famer running cross-country and track and field at Fordham, where she set a number of A-10 records, Fordham records, and won a number of A-10 championships. From there, she went on to compete in the 2015 World Championships in the 1500 meters for Team USA. And Kerry is also very involved in her parish community in the Bronx. Kerry, thank you for taking the time. Sure, Patrick, thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be here. So we'll start with, uh, we'll start with last March and uh, when the pandemic went down, it must have changed your coaching strategy a little bit. How was it communicating with your student athletes and trying to plan ahead for some uncertain times? Yeah, I think we learned that planning ahead was almost, almost impossible. Um, in a lot of ways. So um, where previously coaching was very planned out, we had seasons, we kind of knew what was coming up a few months in advance, at least of when we were competing. We built out our training around that. We had to pivot very quickly to um, one, sending everybody home with almost no notice. Um, you know, the athletes just hit right before spring break for us. So they went home for spring break, not knowing if they were coming back, Um, And as it turns out, the school ended up going remote for the rest of the semester. So they ended up coming back in May to get their stuff, but they went home for for spring break and uh, and ultimately didn't come back where they weren't sure. So that those initial couple of months was really about giving them the space to adapt to um, all the changes that were happening around them, to adapt to being back home, to adapt to online learning. So we really had to take the pressure off of the training um, and really figure out ways to stay in communication and ways to um, reassess our priorities and make sure that we were emphasizing the right thing. So for, for us, and every team was going to have to do that differently, but for us, that meant finding a routine, figuring out what kind of training they had access to, they were able to do, and how did it fit in with their academics, um, and really giving ourselves time to plan when can we start training a little in a little more focused way. Um, we didn't have races coming up. So we had time and space to do that. So it felt important to me to take the pressure off of getting ready for something in particular, because we didn't know when that was, and to kind of find our footing, have good, solid, sound footing um, before we started, you know, training with, um, with purpose. So that was kind of our approach. And I think it worked well, you know, we, we did the typical, you know, Google meets every week. Um, we had team meetings, I met with the men and the women separately. Those were really productive. A couple times we invited, I invited some, um, you know, colleagues of mine, some former competitors to come join them and talk about how they've been handling the pandemic. Um, we took the opportunity to go through some of the basics and the principles of the sport and of training. Um, so we ch- kind of took it as a, as a time to dive deeper into the sport in a way that sometimes you don't have time to as you're coming from class, going to practice, have to run off to class again, and then you're competing every weekend. So it kind of gave us some space to dive into things a little deeper. And we, we certainly took that opportunity. Fast forward a little closer to present time, maybe not this month, but December, January, still a little uncertainty. How do you keep everybody ready though? There's hope to run, but you know, something may happen and that may be postponed a couple more weeks or a couple more months. Yeah, we're really practicing the principle of adaptability. That <laughs> um, that's just, that's just a reality. So I think that hit us probably the hardest at the end of the summer when when we were really hopeful that we would have a cross country season for a lot of the summer and and the team trained really hard. Um, And then we found out towards the end of the summer that the season was canceled. And so then I had hoped maybe we could scrimmage some local teams and then that wasn't allowed. 
<clears throat> and so we um, probably that was one of the hardest hits for us. Um, so what I did was we set up kind of a time trial um, effort for the end of the cross country season, you know, when our conference would have been that gave us some direction, it gave us some purpose. Um, the actual time trial, the actual day, as it turns out, it's really hard to create a competitive experience when you don't have competition. So, you know, looking back, I might not try to replicate that, um, but I think it gave us what we needed through the fall. I mean, the team is really driven, really focused, and they, they rebounded from that disappointment of not having a season pretty quickly. Because on the flip side of that, there was a lot of gratitude for, for being able to be back on campus, for having the semester go as well as it did at Manhattan College. Um, we didn't have to go remote at any time. We didn't have any team pauses. So while, you know, we didn't have our season, there were a lot of things that were going well and giving us hope that things were getting better. Maybe they weren't where we wanted them to be at that moment, but they were getting better. And so now, you know, we, we hit November, the school, you know, goes to online remote learning um, after Thanksgiving, which we were prepared for and we knew was going to happen. Um, now they're training at home for nine weeks, but we knew with almost certainty that outdoor was gonna happen for us. Um, indoor was still a question mark, but most of the team was okay with that being a, a question mark. Um, cross country ended up getting moved to the winter. So we knew we were gonna be competing in some capacity with, with a pretty high degree of confidence. And that's turning out to be the case. So um, it gave us something a little more tangible to work towards and that's what we've been hanging on to. I would say you have been had it in a little proactive. I mean, last weekend, was awesome for the program. You guys hosted a cross country meet. It wasn't the best conditions, I assume, with snow on the ground, but I'm sure it's just great to be out there competing. Yeah, it really was. And that was, you know, the work of, uh, you know, the Mac coaches. We all were getting on Zoom calls pretty regularly to talk about what was happening to, to kind of, you know, push the conference a little bit to, to get some answers on, are we having a season? What is it going to look like? How should we be preparing? And so in some of those early calls, probably around December, um, it was becoming apparent that we would have a season, but we were going to have to find the opportunities. And obviously there's a lot of limitations still, especially with public parks. And that's what we run into. But um, we had found this facility up in Montgomery, New York, um, this organization, 12th Rock Ministries, that um, was putting on fall cross country meets for high schoolers all fall. And they did it really successfully. So I reached out to the guy, Greg J. Lisinski. He was uh, fantastic. He was all about putting on a race for us. There was, we have had unprecedented snow all through February, which has been its own challenge and just um, has to, it's a little comical, honestly. It's a, you know, we're, we're trying to come back to practice and we have all this snow, but um, 12th Rock got all the snow cleared and there was ice, there was slush. It was feel like of 22, um, but there was just this overwhelming feeling of gratitude at the, at the event, um, at the event itself. And uh, you know, I took, I took the reins and decided to be the one to host, um, you know, and, and I'm grateful to the administration of Manhattan College, worked really hard to make it happen. Um, there's a lot that administrators need to be working on nonstop around the clock. And so a cross country meet coming into the mix is not the easiest thing in the world, but they certainly embraced it. They understood that um, there will not be opportunities unless we create them. And so that was what was important to me. And um, unfortunately, we didn't have team full teams ready to compete, um, but I still felt important that that opportunity remained for the other teams that had committed to it um, and for even my athletes that maybe weren't ready to compete but needed to get on the line in some capacity. So it was a great experience. I'm really glad that we did it. Um, it was fun to have the Jasper's name on a meet. 
the the facility was great and I really um, I'm hoping to get back there in the fall when we're not dealing with so much snow removal and it's you know things are in bloom and looking a little nicer. <laughs> you look at this year which still presents its challenges but what have you learned about yourself as a coach during this time? Oh man so much <laughs> that's a great question. Um, I think I'm going to be distilling that for for a while but um I learned that you have to respond to the athletes that you're, and, and I, in some way I, I've known that throughout my career, but in a very real way, I think it was apparent that we're dealing with people and you, you can't just dictate times and intervals and mileage. You have to really respond to where they're at, who they are, what are their struggles, what are their strengths. Um, and so it's been a real, um, it's been a real opportunity to, let that relationship, that coach-athlete coach relationship grow a little bit deeper so that I'm understanding, I, you know, I, I always, I learned this from my coach, Coach Centrowitz, that um, you don't give somebody something that they're not ready for. And he had, a, he had a real talent for that. And I think he developed that throughout his career. You know, he, coach, he was coaching for about 40 years or so, um, maybe less. Maybe I'm mixing in his athletic career into that. But he learned that, you know, you don't, you don't do something that you're not ready for. You don't give athletes something they're not ready for. Um, and we're kind of responsible for knowing that they're not always going to know that. So, um, yeah, with, with, you know, the pandemic, with all the stresses that, you know, existed externally, um, we really had to lighten up quite a bit athletically, um, just to give them space to deal with everything that was going on. So, uh, yeah, I also had to take a step back from, um, being too tied to competition because <laughs> we didn't have it. You know, and so those either way, when competition goes well or doesn't go well, um, it, it gives you a lot of information. It also um, can validate or fuel some of your um, some of the work that you do. And without that, it's it's a question of how what, why am I doing this? Why am I still here? Um, so it was a good opportunity for me as a coach to kind of reevaluate that why, just like I'm challenging my athletes to reevaluate the why. We have no competitions. Why are we doing this? You know, and um, to answer that question truthfully will help us, you know, move forward more authentically and I think in a better way. So you mentioned Coach Matt Sentuance, and this is a cool situation. I'm assuming on your end, he coached you when you're running professionally. You worked with him at American, and now you're working with him at uh, Manhattan College. What's that like, like being coached by him and then being a colleague and working with him at the college level too? Sure. Yeah, it's been it's been really interesting in this new um, dynamic that we have, because in the, in the previous one, I was his assistant coach and I was his athlete. Um, and so, you know, I, I followed his lead. I followed his direction. Um, and I had say, I had say, of course, he, he valued my feedback in, in both those roles, but he was a, the very primary you know, decision maker in both of those relationships. And so, um, and I learned a lot. I learned a lot. And, and being able to run for him and coach with him at the same time was really um, an amazing experience because I got to really understand the work I was doing in a, in a, um, in a way that I don't know a lot, a lot of athletes have because the same conversations I was, uh, he was having with me in the office as an athlete, I was kind of seeing him have them with, you know, the college athletes. And while the work was different, the principles were all the same. The program was the same. And so um, you know, I had that objective view. I was kind of learning from the outside and the inside at the same time. 
Now, fast forward to Manhattan College, where he's our director and I'm head coach. Um, it's a different relationship. I have a lot more um, decision-making power and, and it was important to him. We had a lot of conversations coming, um, coming into this that you know, we were going to work together to build this program. And so um, somebody that I looked up to so much and still do to now have um, a little bit more even footing with him where we're more collaborative um, in a way that we weren't before um, it had its challenges of kind of not falling into kind of the old ways, but um, it's been really fun and I think challenging for both of us and rewarding for both of us to really have this opportunity to, um, to push the program forward together because we have very, very different styles in a lot of ways um, and a lot of different personalities in a lot of ways. And so uh, it's kind of a good system of checks and balances on both our ends where he, he pushes me to think bigger <laughs> You know, and I and I push him um, in in ways you know that he uh, has appreciated getting pushed too. So it's it's hard to pinpoint, but it's the the collaborativeness of it is has been fun. How did you get into running? I know normally cross country and track and field it normally takes a little push to get into the sport. I know for me, I'm thankful for you to getting me into it because I remember going up to Fordham with uh, your aunt Meg and cousin Billy for a game, and you're like Pat, if you have no other sports to play just try running and I wasn't the best runner but 12 years later many friendships many lessons learned it was a really great experience so did someone push you to get into this sport or is it just something you wanted to try on your own yeah I was, I was pushed into it um, by my mom actually um, but in a, in a good way not in a, not in a bad way I was playing basketball JV basketball my freshman year of high school and um, I wasn't getting a lot of playing time and so my mom who had been driving me to a lot of my games um saw that and, and she saw I wasn't particularly happy. You know, I was, I was a good team player. I loved being on the team. I love my teammates, but um, it's hard not to play. And she, she recognized that I had a, a different talent than basketball. So it's not like I needed to stick it out and I was gonna do great. I think she thought I had a lot more potential um, in running just because every sport I played, I was not really good at that sport. I was fast. <laughs> and so um, at NCYO, you can kind of get away from get away with that. So she suggested I try cross country going into my sophomore year of high school. And I was a little resistant, but I said, okay, fine, I'll try it. And uh, I fell in love right away. My team was so fun. Um, I, I ran my first race and, and didn't even have a uniform, but it was just, it was a great time. I ran well. Um, I think I, I got a medal. I was, so I was probably like top 50, <laughs> but at the time I didn't know much. So, you know, I have a medal. I have my teammates pat me on the back and, um, you know, we rode the bus there. We rode the bus back. It was a lot of fun. So from there, it was kind of, the rest was history. I played basketball that same year, but by junior year of high school, I was ready to focus just on running. You had a unique situation. I mean, the Gallagher running legacy, I'll call this cool. You ran at Fordham. Mary ran at, um, St. Francis College, Connor and Liam both ran at Malloy, and then the twins, Jackie and Therese, ran at St. John. So six people, collegiate runners, all very successful. But in high school, you're able to run with your sister, Mary. What was that like? It was great. Mary and I um, are very close, and we always have been. You know, like any sibling, we have our periods of time where we where we bicker, but um, we've shared a room our whole lives. So we were very, very close. So when Mary came in as a freshman, I was a junior, um, it was just, it was just cool. And Mary, she is a tenacious athlete. Like she is fierce. And so, I mean, I remember after every race, I never, I don't think in my life have thrown up after a race and she without fail at 
I hope she doesn't mind me sharing this. <laughs> After every race um, was throwing up, she just would put it all out there. On, she would put it all out there. And, um, and that was just really cool to see. She, she worked really hard. She, she motivated me. She pushed me. Um, and I really enjoyed helping her um, learn the sport and, and come into the sport. So uh, running with her in high school was, was awesome. And then to go into college, we were in different primary conferences, but we were in the Met Conference together. So we saw each other at a lot of meets. And that was just great to be able to cheer her on in her races and have her cheering me on. Um, was really special to, to continue that into college. Your running story is so fun. So you go on the Fordham, and I'll go into why you ask why you went to Fordham in a second. But speaking on family at Fordham, you were able to run with your cousin, Tim Hutchinson, as well. So did that have anything to do with you choosing Fordham, or was that a coincidence? And what was it like running with your cousin at the same institution? Well, I knew that we were – I mean, we were both looking at Fordham, so we would talk about that as we were deciding. I decided before him, so – um, I was actually kind of pushing him to go to Fordham once I decided. So um, I don't know how much me telling him to come to Fordham factored into his decision or not, but it was really great to have, have him there. Um, it was definitely, you know, a, a security and a comfort to have, you know, cousin that I grew up with, was very close with um, there with us. We were sharing that experience. Um, our families could come to the meets. Um, so if my parents weren't there, usually his parents were there and, um Tim's just fun you know he's a fun guy he, he was he was fast and he was a hard worker and um he saw some success quicker than I did um at Fordham so I thought that was you know as I look back I think that was pretty motivating for me um to see him doing so well right when he arrived and and challenged me to want to to want to do the same for the women's team so it, it was it was pretty cool I am glad that we had that opportunity to both be on the team at the same time mentioned you may have got off to a slower start than Tim, but you ended really well with the number of A-10 records, A-10 championships, school records, and you're in the Fordham Hall of Fame. How was your experience at Fordham? Yeah, Fordham, Fordham was definitely a growing experience for me. I, I came in not really aware of what it took to be successful at the collegiate level. Um, I had a little more maturing to do. Um, so, you know, I, I got caught up in some, some not great habits and, and wasn't, uh, you know, getting the right amount of sleep that I needed. I wasn't feeling my body the way I needed to. Um, and so that took most of freshman year to kind of figure out. My priorities were a little bit out of whack. And so um, I had some success. I technically PR'd in the 800 by like a couple tenths of a second. So it wasn't a bad year by um, the standards of what I had run in high school, but it certainly wasn't um, to my potential. And I think at the end of freshman year, I really started to realize that, you know, I was brought in on a scholarship and I'm not really performing to um, the expectation that I had of myself and I'm sure that my coach had of me. So going into sophomore year, um, probably took a couple months into sophomore year to really kind of wake up and say, you know what, I got to start taking this seriously. But those wheels had started turning. By the end of sophomore year, um, I was really um, seeing the opportunities that I had. I was starting to see some success. I was still kind of focusing on the 800 at the time and I was running a little bit better. Um, but I feel like sophomore year was kind of where I springboarded into um, thinking on a little bit of a higher level, expecting to, you know, a little bit more of myself and, and wanting to be the top in the conference. I feel like my competitiveness was really kind of triggered at some point in sophomore year. And so um, from there, junior and senior year, I went, you know, 
freshman year, I was totally unknown, completely, you know, should have, should have been unknown. Sophomore year, I was starting to come up, but uh, some people probably wouldn't have noticed that. By junior year, I was kind of established as one of the top in the conference. And, um, you know, senior year, it was kind of fun to kind of defend that, defend that space. So, um, yeah, it was a nice, it was a nice progression. Um, and it was certainly built off of learning, making mistakes, failing quite a bit. Um, and allowing that to kind of fuel my desire for more. Um, so, you know, I think at the time I wouldn't have described it that way. I think I was just kind of going with the flow. I was kind of, you know, rolling through the experiences. Um, but as I look back, I can see that it certainly was just, you know, the growing process that kind of led to the success. They're not in the same conference, but they do share a borough. Was it interesting going from Fordham where you spent your running career to becoming a head coach at Manhattan? Because there is some sense of rivalry there. Yeah, very much so. I mean, Battle of the Bronx is a big, a big thing for us, um, both in, you know, in basketball and in all the sports, um, especially to be coaching against my alma mater. There's always a, you know, I want them to do well, but there's kind of that extra motivation to want to, um, you know, beat my, my former team. Um, it's interesting because our athletic director, Marion Riley, she was an administrator at Fordham while I was there. So there's a lot of familiarity at Manhattan um, just because there's a lot of overlap between Fordham and, and Manhattan in that way, even people who are working at both schools that were at the previous one. So, um, but what I like about Manhattan, there's a lot of similarity in the type of athlete that goes to Fordham, that goes to Manhattan. Um, and so there was something about the Manhattan opportunity, the Manhattan athletes that I felt very connected to because of my experience at Fordham. So I'm very happy to be here. Um, you know, Fordham is still very dear to me. I'm still very close to um, my previous coach who recently retired. The current coach was a teammate of mine. Um, and so, you know, I still feel very, very connected to Fordham, but there's, there's always that little rivalry, a friendly rivalry for sure, but we, we definitely want to beat each other. <laughs> now you graduated with a degree in mathematics and you went on to work and then when did you realize running professionally was in the cards? It was pretty quickly after, after graduating, um, but it wasn't me that realized it. <laughs> it was, um, so Matt Centrowitz, who I, who was coaching me at, at a college, um, he's good friends with my high school coach. And so he had, um, I guess, suggested to my high school coach that if I wanted to uh, continue running after college there was an opportunity in DC with him and, and he had recruited me to American out of high school so he had kind of followed my career a little bit um, we would see each other at some meets and so I you know he had expressed you know this interest in coaching me he thought, he thought I could do well um, and so I had taken a job at Morgan Stanley and I was working for about two months but um, but about a month after graduating, maybe even less, I had gone to lunch with my high school coach and he had suggested the opportunity. And um, I don't even, I didn't know what it even meant to go run post-collegiately, to run professionally. Um, I ended up running professionally in the early days. It was pretty, pretty amateur. You know, I was, I was paying for all my stuff and trying to, trying to make ends meet. But um, something about the opportunity just you know, struck me. Um, it felt important to go down there. And so without much knowledge, without much understanding, which I was going to have to learn um, a lot, uh, a little bit the hard way, um, I decided to quit my job and move to DC and, and take a shot at the running uh, with very little knowledge of what I was getting into and 
very little understanding of how far I would need to to get. <laughs> was there a point you realized the world stage? It was obviously the end goal, but do you real was there a point you realized you could actually get there? It took a long time. I would say 2015 was probably the first time I realized I could be competitive on the world stage. Um, making the team was probably what made me realize that. My first almost four years, I had established um, competitiveness on a regional, somewhat national level. So national in the sense that I had made nationals. Um, I didn't make trials in 12, but I made nationals in 13 and made the final. And then I made it in 14, didn't make the final. And then in 15 is when I made the team. So, um, you know, I was just kind of like scratching the surface of that national competitiveness, depended on the opportunity. Um, more so in the races, the times, were, my times were not very, very competitive against some, some of these women that I was racing against, but um, it was just enough to make the championship most years. It was 2015 that things kind of, you know, exploded for me. You know, I made the team, then I ran a big PR, and then I was competing in um, some of the biggest races in the world and, um, and then into that indoor season. So, um, but what was interesting was where competing at that highest level was what was going to validate that experience for the first couple of years. It was in 2015, or at least going into that season, that I kind of let go of that, where I finally realized if I don't make it to the highest level, this was still a worthwhile experience. This was still, um, this is still where I am and it's good and it's okay. And, and I don't need to be validated by the result. So it was kind of, it sounds a little counterintuitive, but um, I think my understanding of the value of what I was doing was completely out of, um, you know, not in the right order. It was, it was not the right priority. And so when I like loosened up my grip on wanting the success, that's where the success came in. <laughs> so um, yeah, it was, it was very late, you know, when I realized I could be competitive at that, at that level. Back to 2015, it's uh, you watch that race. You led the race for a little bit. I mean, you ended up coming in third, but I'm sure it was really cool to lead the top women's 1500 meter runners in the country for a little bit, and then end up qualifying by finishing third. Yeah, that was pretty. That was pretty cool. The reason I ended up taking the lead was because you know the race went out tactically, and I had experienced it a number of times in those races. When that happens, they close hard. And I knew who the closers were. And Jenny Simpson and Shannon Roberry were always the top two. That had just been the way it was for a number of years. Um, and so I knew pretty much everybody in the field was queuing off of them. So Shannon actually made a slight move to move up. I thought she was making a big move to go. <laughs> and so um, I remember thinking throughout the race, as I ended up in last, I was in last most of that race. And just kind of, you know, make sure I had an opportunity, make sure I had an opening for when I needed it. I kind of knew Jenny and Shannon were going to be my, my kind of cues for if I should go. And so Shannon made that slight move. I somewhat misread it, but I was thinking, all right, we're about 500 meters out. You know, the kick's going to come down at the bell and I don't want to be chasing. I want to be, I want to be at the front of it. So that's kind of what sparked me to just kind of go wide and, and, and head to the front and, it just so happened that I ended up leading Jenny either since that, or maybe she was making her own move at the same time. So we just kind of like closed in on the finish, um, on the bell lap together. I think I had a half a step on her because my name came up first. And, 
we were stride for stride on the back stretch, which even at, I remember in that moment thinking, I'm stride for stride with Jenny Simpson. This is unreal. <laughs> um, so it was great. And, and Jenny pulled away from me in the last straightaway. Shannon went by me. Neither of those things surprised me. Um, I was just kind of focused on driving as hard as I could, running as fast as I could to make sure, you know, the people weren't catching me behind me. So, um, and yeah, I held on and, and ended up being third by, by a fair amount. It got close, maybe 50 meters out, but um, I was able to kind of maintain my form and, and some of the other women, I think we're starting to tie up a little bit. It was just enough to give me a, a comfortable um, line across the finish. And then you got third place, but you still needed to make the time to make the Team USA team. What was that journey like to making sure that you actually got to Beijing? Yeah, I mean, it was a lot of, there was so much excitement about finishing third and, and I wasn't expected to do that at all. Nobody, nobody saw me in that third place spot, myself included. So um, we quickly, my, you know, Matt Centris was really good about getting me connected to the right people. We got connected with an agent who was able to get us um, into some races in, in Europe. Um, typically that's what, what folks would do. They'd head to Europe and race and either chase standards or try to run fast times. So um, pretty shortly after the U.S. championships, I flew to Italy. We had a, a three 1500s on the schedule, all great opportunities to go chase it. Um, and I, I wasn't worried about it because, you know, I had PR'd in the prelim by one second, but that felt so comfortable that I, I, I felt very confident that I was going to be able to run the, the 406 that I needed. And, um, you know, first time, first attempt in Italy, um, I was still pretty jet lagged. I, I was able to run 403 and I think part of it was because I had confidence also that that race was pretty pre, you know pressure free we weren't really expecting that to be the one so I, I think I was able to race with a lot of freedom and just kind of do what I was do what I needed to do so um, I wasn't really stressed about the prospect of making the time I was pretty confident I would get it and what was it like to represent your country in the world championship it was, it was pretty amazing. I mean, um, putting on a U.S. kid is like, it, it's, it's a cool feeling. It's a cool feeling. And um, I did not take that opportunity lightly. You know, a lot of people were like, oh, you're just happy to be here. Um, and to me, it was like, no, I made this team. Like, I have to show up. So my, go my, my goal is to make a final, you know, and, and be, you know, put, put the U.S. on, you know, on the stage. And I, I was out in the semifinal round, but I, but I went for it. I went for a, a spot in the final. And so I was proud of the way I competed. And I, that was not just going to be an experience of, oh, this is great. I'm just going to enjoy it. Um, I'm going to enjoy it while taking it very seriously. You know, I, this is a spot that I earned, but it's a spot that I have over somebody else. And so, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a great experience. I think it was something I, I will cherish for the rest of my life. Just switching gears a little bit from running over to Catholicism a little, I find there's a little, a lot similar between preparing for a race and preparing for life, so to say. And how do you keep that balance between coaching where you can be torn in many different directions, but making sure you do what you have to do on a daily basis? Yeah, that can, that can be hard, but I'm learning more and more that, that our, our daily lives, our daily responsibilities are part of our spiritual life they're part of our prayer life you know god has us here he has willed us it will that we be in these positions you know these um this job that i have it's not like i work and then i pray you know like it, it, i don't do this perfectly this has been the work of quite a few years and especially even more intensely probably in the past couple of years 
Um, but really learning that when I get frustrated that I didn't have as much time to, to pray in a day as much as I want, had wanted to, um, did I miss the opportunity to allow my work to be my prayer? You know, did I offer that to, to God as, as something for him to work with and work through? So um, really, you know, we're striving to, to come, you know, allow the two to, to be one, <laughs> you know, our, my coaching life and my spiritual life really should be very, very much um, tied and connected to each other. Um, but I also do things to, you know, and I'm fortunate to be at a Catholic school where I'm coaching. So we have the chapel. Um, so I do, I take a few minutes um, pretty often and I'll go to the chapel and I'll pray in front of the blessed sacrament. Um, we have daily mass twice a week and I try to make a point to go when, when there's mass on campus. Um, and so the little things like that, I have a, a crucifix over my door of the office. And I actually got that from a homily at one of the masses, Father Tom said, um, that, that it's a good practice to put a crucifix in your, above your doorway um, in your office or wherever as a reminder that when somebody comes into the office, you see the crucifix, like this is a child of God that you're, that you're working with. <laughs> um, and so that's a great reminder for me. My athletes, they may or may not notice it as they're leaving, but they don't see it as they come in. I see it. And so that's just, again, a reminder of why am I here? What is my main purpose? I'm, I'm getting them faster. We want to win championships. That's all really present and real. Um, but more than anything, you know, they, these are, these are human beings who, um, you know, are made in the image and likeness of God. And I have a responsibility to respect that. So it's, it's, it's a, it's an ongoing work that. <laughs> but you're, de you're definitely inspiring. It, because I remember we were, uh, I don't know where we were, but we were talking and I was like, I want to try to get the mass more this summer. And I gave you reasons why I didn't go. And you're like, Pat, you're just making excuses. Just go after it. So you're inspiring that way. So you coach people up on the track and life. So it really helped me. It's like, yeah, maybe I have to get up earlier. It stinks, but it's a sacrifice. Right. And we sometimes have to make those sacrifices to recenter and get where we have to go. Yeah. Now, you were on the road uh, with Team USA and you travel a lot. Were there any cool churches or anything you experienced along that way or had a cool experience there? Yeah, I actually, um, so we went to China, uh, before we went to China for the world championships, we actually spent a week in Japan to get a, a adjusted to the um, time difference. And so the one week that we're in Japan, I, anytime I traveled, I would look up the Catholic churches and the masses and make sure I got to mass on Sunday. Um, so that morning that I made the team in Eugene, Oregon, um, I was at mass with coach and, uh, uh, you know, that morning. So we um, were in Japan and I looked it up and there was an English speaking mass once a month and it happened to be that one week that I was there and so I went I took a cab to that church and it was a Filipino community that was actually living in Japan and I was wearing a USA um, quarter zip and they saw the American flag and asked me if I would do the readings and so I did the readings and then um, after mass one of the women who had asked me to do the reading she didn't speak English very well but she grabbed my arm and she said lunch <laughs> And I didn't really have an option. She led me down um, these stairs to this little parish hall where they had a little potluck lunch with the pastor and um, a bunch of parishioners from the community. And they had me sit right next to the priest and um, gave me lunch. And we, you know, we shared a moment. And I remember that just struck me. I was like, this is the Catholic church. This is like the universality of the experience. This is, um, I've never met these people. I'm probably never going to see them again, but I'm their sister in Christ and they recognize that. And 
I was just welcomed. <laughs> you know, they they saw a new person and they wanted me to to feel very welcomed there. Now, of course, I had done some pretty poor planning to get home, and so um, I thought I was going to take the train home. It was the wrong stop. I didn't have the hotel address written in Japanese. I only had it in English, so. I almost got lost in Japan forever, but um, I was able to figure out the subway system. I took a little too much money out of the ATM, not knowing <laughs> the conversions. That was a whole other story, but um, that's a, that's a memory that's going to stay with me because it was really it was really beautiful, um, and I was just really grateful. Like praise God that He uh, allowed the one weekend that um, mass was in English because I could have gone and it could have been in Japanese or. or um, but it was just easier for me that it was in English. And then you're very involved in the young adult ministry at your parish. How did you get into that and what motivates you to do that? Because you mentioned you have a busy schedule, but taking the time out to focus on bringing other people to mass adoration and just drawing them closer to the Lord. Yeah, I kind of fell into it, quite honestly. I was meeting, I had um I mean, long story short, I had decided to start going to my parish in the Bronx more regularly and make make an effort to do that. I had kind of been bouncing around going at Manhattan or going in Rockaway where my parents are. And I didn't I wasn't really establishing myself, um, you know, in the parish. And I recognize that um, the community aspect is really important. So I started to go and I, and I um, ended up meeting with the pastor about something else. Um, I think I wanted to like you know, lecture or something like that. And um, he started talking about having a young adult group. And I said, oh, that, that would be great. I would love to, to um, go to something like that. And then he was like, oh, would you, would you organize it? <laughs> and so um, at that point, I felt like I couldn't say no. If I'm willing to receive from the group, I think I should probably be willing to um, volunteer my time for it. So it wasn't really expected. It's not something I had a desire um, to do, but it kind of, the opportunity opened up. I had just recently met a friend, um, a friend in the neighborhood and in the parish, and I kind of roped her into it. And um, so it's taken on a lot of different forms, it went from a dinner and a talk to a holy hour and a dinner. And now it's basically just a holy hour. It's, you know, doing social events is a little more complicated during these times. So we just leave it with a holy hour. And it's, it's had its challenges, but um, I've met some really great people in my neighborhood through it. And I've been really inspired to be around other young adults who are, um, you know, striving to deepen their faith and grow in relationship with God. It's, you know, I think about it, you know, running is a very individual sport, but it's hard to do alone. And I think you've experienced this. It's, it's better with a team. And it's, that's what I'm finding with this young adult ministry at the parish is that we could all individually be, you know, trying to grow a relationship with the Lord, but when we have each other around, you know, like when you're at daily mass and you see, you know, a few of your friends from the young adult group, it's, it's encouraging, you know, it's inspiring and it's motivating. So um, I think the Lord was really good to me <laughs> in allowing me to be a part of it. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to, um, help facilitate a space where we can all come together and grow in friendship. Um, but yeah, certainly not something I was looking for um, in terms of organizing it, but, uh, and I've almost bailed out a few times if I'm being totally honest, but, um, but it's been really, really good. So there's, there's, 
almost no time to do anything, but you find time for what's important to you. And, um, and working with my friends, uh, Samantha has been really great. And I think we're a great team where we are able to kind of balance for each other. If I have a little less time to give on a given month, she'll compensate and vice versa. So we've been a good team in that way. And last question. Thank you so much for taking the time again out of your busy schedule, but this year has seemed like a year long Lent and knowing track and everything, things get tough, but there are always ways to work on and get yourself better, even though you may be in the slump or something. What are some of your, it doesn't have to be your goals for Lent, but what are some things you may encourage people to do if they're struggling a little bit to take that next step? Yeah, I, um, as an athlete, I think I understood Lent pretty incorrectly for a number of years where I, I wanted it to be as hard as possible. So for me, it was all about giving up, give, what, what am I giving up and is it going to be really hard? And I think the Lord works with that too, but I'm realizing as I've gotten older, it's about sacrifice, but what is that sacrifice leading you to? And so I've actually taken a step back and not tried to pick the hardest penance, but where am I lacking right now? Where am I recognizing that gap in my spiritual life? you know, and, and what is going to lead me back? What's going to help me reset? I think you had said that even earlier, what's going to help me recalibrate, reset and get centered and focused on, on God and, and what's going to allow him to work because this is a time, this isn't a time for us to work on ourselves. This is a time for the Lord to work in our hearts and in our, in, in our lives. And I am kind of a control freak <laughs> at times. And it's taken me a long time to really understand that. So my, my advice for Lent, if I'm even qualified to give any, but what I've found has been helpful for me um, is to not focus on making it as hard as possible. It's not, Lent is about sacrifice, but that's, if it's only about sacrifice without giving room to God to work, then there's something missing. And so for me, my penances are actually a little lighter than they have been in the past, but they're a lot deeper. Um, and so that would be that would be my thoughts for Lent. Um, I can't believe we're in Lent again. I saw this hilarious meme of somebody was running and it was Lent 2020. It was like processing Lent 2020 and then a guy chasing <laughs> Lent 2021 coming up. It was like, how we just finished? How did we how did we end up back here? But um, I'm looking forward to this season. I think it's going to be challenging in a, in in a lot of ways. It already is, but um, yeah, I think it's going to be good. And they're both very relatable, real life and Lent now, because we're going to 40 days for Easter and that great victory. And then at least on the collegiate sport aspect, we're starting competition again, and it seems like things are getting better. So it's just taking in time for that journey to better ourselves and also realize that better days are ahead. And once we get to those better days, we could excel and do what we have to do. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. At Lent should be filled with hope. <laughs> You know, to be filled with the hope of the resurrection that we know um, that we know is coming. So it, it's it's a time of um, it's a solemn time, but it, it shouldn't really be a sad time. I don't think I'm not very qualified to say this. This is just my experience. Terry, <laughs> thank you for taking so much time out of your uh, busy schedule to talk to me. You've been a giant help to me throughout my career, whether it be encouraging the right um, the running answering my emails, which are probably annoying when you were competing internationally, but I appreciate everything you've done for me. And thank you for taking the time today. It was fun talking to you. Yeah, Pat, I love what you're doing here and, and I wish you well. And I, my prayers are with you for this podcast. I think it's really great. So it was a pleasure. 
Thank you. Have a good We'd like to thank Kerry Gallagher once again for taking the time to talk to us in the Pat McCormick podcast. Thank you all for listening. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Have a good week and we'll see you next time.